to Track by Track with me, Dan. And me, Will. This is the podcast where you take a great pop music album and break it down track by track. So let's try being in love with another incredible album because on the turntable this week, we've got Homosexual by Darren Hayes. Uh, and spoiler alert, I don't think we're going to have to try too hard to be in love with this album. Absolutely not. I mean, what's, let's talk about it straight from the off. What's strange about this new album episode with, spoiler alert, special guest joining us, is that the album is already available. You've already had time to listen to it and fall in love with it for yourselves. And now you get to hear all about it. Yes, uh, we've not done uh, these for a while. And then we've like buses to come along once where we've been talking about Tom Aspel as well recently with his expanded uh, addition to uh, Life in Plastic. Life in Plastic, it's expanded. And it is no surprise to any regular listeners that we are huge Darren Hayes fans. In fact, we went track by track through his second album, The Tension and the Spark, within the first year of track by track. And then we tweeted along to it with him during the lockdown, which was huge and trended on Twitter. And then early this year, we celebrated 20 years of his debut album, Spin. Uh, and so we were delighted when the opportunity came up uh, to uh, talk about this as a new release special uh, episode with Darren joining us as well. Although, Dar- Dan, mm. I, I nearly called you dad then. Um, <laughs> apologies. Force of habit. Again. <laughs> Although, again, Darren isn't with us in the studio today. No, it's not. But a bit of a theme developing here, Will, because we did have a catch up with him, but you weren't available, were you? Well, it wasn't that I was unavailable. I was uh, un uh, conscious. <laughs> I was so excited about uh, getting the chance to speak to Darren, a huge fan from way back when, that I actually passed out with excitement. So uh, uh, you'll only hear you talking to Dan. To Darren. Well, spoiler alert, because you can't hear it on a podcast, but Will was actually laid next to me unconscious. But I thought, on with the show. It's what he would have wanted. And you were giving me mouth-to-mouth between songs, <laughs> whether I needed it or not. <laughs> but uh, Darren has also talked at length about this album for us. And I have to say, it's the... Per- I mean, obviously, the whole reason we do this this podcast is so you can listen to the album and then listen to us talk about it track by track. But I would definitely advise listening to this episode alongside listening to the album in its entirety because Darren's uh, Darren's words are a wonderful accompaniment to what is a deeply personal album for him. And if you are listening on Patreon right now, you are getting it a week ahead of everyone else. You are getting those incredible insights from Darren himself before the general public. And I have to say, I was over the moon when Darren announced he had not just recorded some new songs, but had got a whole album ready to go. Because there was a big gap, wasn't there? There was a decade gap. And we thought we talked about it on the spin episode and we probably talked about it on the tension and the spark episode. We thought Darren was done with the music industry. And I think he felt he was done with it as well. Well, and I was going to say the same thing. I think for I think for a while he probably was done, but felt the stories inside him, the music within him that he wanted to record. And, you know, his most honest, truthful, quite raw at times album. But at the same time. Uh, sonically sensational. Yeah. 
Well, Will, we have got a lot to get through today. So first off, ahead of going track by track through the album and ahead of his upcoming tour, shall we find out what Darren had to say about the lot? Let's go over to you and Darren. Darren, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Listeners will know that we are huge fans of yours. We've been track by track through a couple of your albums, but the last time we spoke was unbelievably two and a half years ago when we tweeted along to Attention and the Spark with you during the first lockdown. Now, two and a half years ago, did you have any idea then that there would be a whole new Darren Hayes studio album down the line? Oh, yeah, I was making it. Oh. I was just being very, very secretive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you were very good at that because also this year we celebrated 20 years of spin um, right mm. at the start of the year. We just had Let's Try Being in Love. Uh, so it was, you know, it was, it was quite an exciting time. How much have you gone back and listened to those earlier albums ahead of the new album, if at all? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I try not to. I know every artist says that. And it's not because uh, I distance myself from the music at all. Like, I, I don't. I really am very inclusive of all the music. Like I think of my career actually as seven albums now. I think two of them are Savage Garden, five of them are solo, and one of them is this kind of side project called We Are Smug. Like I think of it all as a continuum. Um, But I think I'm always future thinking, and uh, but I don't exclude the past. Like I'm putting together a set list for a tour, and I'm very aware that I want to play hits. You know, people want to hear hits, even though my favorite albums are probably some of my fans' favorite albums, like The Tension and the Spark, like yeah. songs off this delicate thing we've made, or some of the maybe less commercial stuff. That's definitely my favorite stuff. Um, but through that uh, track by track, tweet along moment, you know, that was very emotional for me. Because the tension and the spark is such a pivotal record in my life and in my career, because it gave me this real confidence, I think, to branch out and to have permission not, it's going to sound crazy, but not to be a chart success. Mm. You know, to, to, to be able to make experimental records that were, um, they could exist in their own right and maybe find their place years and years later, which that record did. So I try not to really look back, but only when I'm going on tour and then it's daunting because it's like, Oh gosh, how do I make this older music fit in with the newer sound? Yeah. And actually that's the last question I had on here, but I'm going to bring it right up to now because you are going on tour next year. We are so excited here in the UK to be able to come and see you live for the first time in many years. But with all of that material, including, as you said, the Savage Garden material and this incredible brand Mm. new album, how on earth do you start to even think about what songs you are going to include and what songs just aren't going to be in there? Because as you said, a lot of your fans, their their favourite tracks might not be the hits they might be something from uh one of the later studio albums so where on earth do you begin and how difficult is it 
It is really difficult, especially on this tour because um, it's 25 years since the first Savage Garden record. The good thing about that is that I think that the first Savage Garden record really fits in in terms of like, I don't know, it stands on its own as this this, uh, quite electronic pop record. Um, I know that when people think of Savage Garden or if people think of Spin even, ballads come to mind you know um but if you listen to the first savage garden record it's very up-tempo very electronic very synth driven all the things that i continued on to do as a a solo artist anyway so what's easy for me about this next tour is it's it's it was marketed as like celebrating 25 years of the first record and that record just happens to be very um pop you know, so it fits in with the sound of the, my new record and it's easy for me to kind of take those songs and, oh gosh, I, we need a new word other than mash up now, but <laughs> to, let's say interpolate. Yeah. Um, it's very easy for me to sort of take some of my new sounds and which are a bit retro and and weave them in and out of the earlier music so that people who are coming along to the show just to see some Savage Garden stuff will be happy and um, new fans or old school fans that really dig the, uh, you know, the experimental stuff will be happy as well, you know. And uh, I'm not going to punish the audience. I think sometimes when you have a new record, the instinct from the artist's point of view is like, oh, I'm going to play all of that new record. And as much as I would love to, my point of view is like the album – is just a newborn baby, you know, and you have a year to live with it and um, get to know it. And I have the rest of my life to sprinkle in those songs on various tours. I don't have to ram them down the audience's throat now because a lot of people won't know the songs. That's Yeah, they'll be very new in their heads. Uh, unlike, as we say, the, the songs that have soundtracked their lives. Um, but yeah. personally, obviously huge fan of this new album and it's interesting that you've talked about the really early Savage Garden material and then some of the things that came later through the through your solo career because there are elements of the new album that for me feel like all of that coming together it feels like a brand new sound it feels like a dance record almost it feels like there's lots of Mm -hmm. funk in there but Mm -hmm. and it and it's interesting because it must be not an intentional thing based on what you said but you can definitely it feels like your 25 year pop careers all hinted at in there one of the things i tried to create with this record was a sense of um a cinematic feeling and an album experience which uh when i started writing the record was definitely against the grain um i will say i was relieved uh a few months ago when beyonce released a song that was long a single that was long because um, this isn't a criticism. This is just how trends and fashion uh, in music happens. You know, the sometimes the format dictates the the art. And, uh, you know, when I was at my most successful, the format was really just radio. And radio tended to be, you will not believe this, but the length of a radio single back then was four minutes and 30 seconds, okay. which seems interminably long now. Yeah. And now I think a radio single, they want it to be under three minutes or, you know, that's really long and you're lucky if you get away with that. 
And TikTok is obviously what two minutes long, if that. Yeah. So, so um, so short. Whereas I wanted to make songs that uh, were five, six minutes long. They blended into each other because I was looking back at a period of my childhood, which was the twelve-inch single, Chet Pettibone, extended mixes, things that were on vinyl, and it was an attempt to um, revisit some painful memories and make them happier. So those painful memories included, obviously, from the title of the album, my coming out. It wasn't the most positive experience. Uh, Me going to see the movie Call Me By Your Name with Timothy Chalamet and uh, the actor who now has been cancelled. I had this uh, really sad reaction to it because it reminded me so clearly that I grew up in the 80s and that wasn't how it felt for me. I I was just uh, submerged in and engulfed in shame about being gay. And um, so I never really got to feel free and I wanted this record to feel free. And um, in order to do that, I kind of, it had to have this um, retrospective feeling to it. So, yeah, there is uh, elements of all of the records that I was influenced by as a, as a kid. And I do revisit some sounds that were in my early career, but also even topics like Do You Remember is a song that is about uh, the same person I'm singing about in Chain to You, which is a Savage Garden song. It's me revisiting the same boyfriend, but this time as a 50-year-old gay man who's out. So it's much more explicit uh, it's much more um, true to the genre of, uh, you know, the type of music I was listening to at, at that point in my mm. life. Yeah. And and you've spoken about how these tracks, a lot of them are longer than your standard three-minute pop song. And it's something that, you know, there's two things we're huge fans of on Track by Track. We're, we're fans of the entire album as a piece of art, as something that is a journey that you live through, which this album definitely feels like. But also we are a fan of longer tracks because if, it, if it's good, then let it keep on playing. And there's a lot of that here. And you wrote and produced the entire thing yourself. Yeah. Do you think, had there been other producers involved, other uh, musicians or writers, do you think that would have changed that, that, that sort of feel of the album? Absolutely. And not necessarily for the worse or for the better or anything. Um, this was... Uh, a an absolute choice that I made as um, as a sort of um, discipline and as a restriction. I think, like anything, um, when you have boundaries, whether they be a budget or they be a time frame or um, a time crunch or, or even in my case, uh, so not only did I write and produce it, but I played everything and sang everything. Every sound that you hear on the record is me. Now, I'm not an amazing musician. So that meant that I had to be very, very clever in how I achieved things. You know, you'll hear guitar on the record. It's not guitar. Uh, it's either a synth, it's an emulator, or it's me singing into a guitar amp. Oh, wow. Me singing, yeah, me singing guitar solos and things. So it forced me to be really creative about how to create what I wanted to hear 
And I love those things because um, if you don't have um, a set of guidelines or limitations, it would just go on and on and on forever. Um, that's the role of a producer in a lot of ways, I think, is to say no. Mm. And if I wasn't going to have anyone to say no, I think uh, just having those basic rules in place, which were I wasn't going to hire any outside uh, players, that in itself gave the record a, a sound. And, um, and, 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 and a toolbox and, 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 a, dif- and a really distinct um, quality to it so yeah it would have been a completely different record had anyone else be involved uh and i'll look forward to that in the future but for this one it was just uh i i had reached a point in my career before uh i walked away where i can now i realize i was just bored i i wasn't challenged and this record totally challenged me (laughs) it was it was um yeah i had to learn how to do a lot of stuff and I think as well, because as you said, and as we know, the album's called Homosexual and it feels so personal. I think knowing that you not only wrote and produced it all, but as you said, played all the instruments as well, it really just takes it all back to you. And not every song is about you specifically. For example, All You Pretty Things, of course, is kind of a more of a, a dedication, but it definitely mm. feels like it's the it's the most... Uh, personal and the most solo an album can be, which completely fits uh, with that whole theme. That's so great that that comes across because that's what I wanted. I mean, I I remember it was always a goal of mine to make an album that felt as intimate as uh, Sign of the Times for Prince and Faith for George Michael. And both of those records had the same credit that I put on the back of mine produced, arranged, composed, and performed by the artist. But it took me 25 years to learn how to do that, you know, and yet those two geniuses I mentioned, I mean, that was, George was doing that really from the beginning of his career, but, you know, his first ever solo album and he was a baby. I can't remember how George, oh, what was he, 24, when he was the biggest superstar in the world? It was definitely around that, yeah. Insane. But, um but faith was um, it had that intimacy and that immediacy about it because, you know, George was playing around with uh, drum machines. A Lindrum was hugely important to him on that record, and uh, it was all about really mixing those percussive instruments and those synthesizers and those uh, snares and kicks really forward in the mix, and his voice really forward and really big reverbs and delays and. Um, that was something I, I wanted to do on this record too, because it's very confronting. Like the the um, the, the the sonics of this record that I've made, I think, are, are, are also confronting, and in a way that I hadn't done since the Tension and the Spark as well, which was also a bedroom record. You know, that record was really the first time an, a producer, Robert Conley, uh, who made that record with me, had really given me a seat. Um, well, I'm at my new studio now, but had given me a seat uh, at the programming desk. And uh, he was just a, a newbie at the time. No, he was really just an assistant to Walter Arfanasiev. And so he, 
him working with me on that record was this big break for him. But he didn't realize that him treating me like an equal in the studio was a big break for me. It really unleashed that my journey is like a programmer and someone that that was really hands-on with since um, it started with Robert and it continued on through every record. And so homosexual is sort of the end result of being given literally a seat at the table in, in that respect. And just that title, because it is so striking. And I was, I was speaking about it earlier and I was saying that because of the, the 10 year gap as well between albums, and knowing you're like like myself, a bit of a sci-fi fan, it almost feels like a little bit of a reboot. And a reboot always has to have something big about it. It has to be there for a reason. And this feels like it. The, the, the whole look of the campaign, that one word title, was there any any hesitation at all? Was there any pushback from anyone about that title? And, and when when was it going to be called Homosexual? Uh, immediately. And it just came, um, just trying to think. Uh, I mean, I knew I knew that I wanted to have, uh, I mean, it's so interesting the way the eras of records come to me because I become a different person. I become mm-hmm. like, I, I think part of that comes from Madonna and growing up in um, a period of music where, musicians reinvented how they looked and how they felt for me it's like inhabiting a new persona every time i i make a record but i felt dead to be honest i had left the music industry and i never thought i was going to make music again and so in some ways it's like a resurrection not just a reboot because um although reboots are perfectly apt way to describe it i I've mentioned several times, you know, I went to see the movie Call Me By Your Name and it was like having um, a defibrillator a defibrillator placed on my heart. And I was struck by a sense of grief for uh, a youth that I hadn't experienced and a connection to my sexuality that had never really been proudly displayed in my music but also a feeling of midlife that had crept up on me that had started to make me feel grey, make me feel washed out, and that the colour had started to drain from my world without me realising it. And the movie had reminded me that, no, I I still had so much passion inside me. And I I ran back home and immediately wrote that song, um, Let's Try Being In Love, which is so full of ecstasy and passion and desire and all of these things that I felt uh, uh, a 50-year-old, whether you're male or female or whatever in society, is supposed to not be. You're not supposed, you know, you're supposed to quietly sort of disappear. We do this to Madonna all the time on Instagram. Mm. You know, we give we give her such a hard time. And I think a lot of gay men will relate to how I feel, which is that um, there's an expiration date on on um, expressing yourself, I think, in a sexual way. And um, I was rebelling against that. And at the same time, I was rebelling against this erasure that I felt had happened to me in my musical career. I was starting to get angry about it and remembering what had happened to me because of this resurgence, 
an arrival of all these wonderful new artists like Ollie, like I almost called him Ollie Mose, like Ollie, Ollie Alexander, years and years, and um, you know Sam Smith, um, obviously Little Nas X, um, people like Kim Petras. Just queer music in general was so vibrant. So I wrote the song, the backing track for Homosexual, and I knew that that's what it was going to be called. So I, I can't even describe it songs just come and that word was I was trying to talk about being gay in a way that was rid of shame but the thing is I'm calling myself a homosexual yeah I'm not I'm not saying you have to identify with that word I'm saying this word no longer has any power over me I'm free of it and in fact I'm proud to be good and it it's so relatable for i'm sure many of our listeners many of your fans who have felt as you have and who have had something like call me by your name which i know will won't mind me saying for him that was a real moment and he was very uh emotional leaving the cinema following that film for me it was Heartstopper a few months ago i really kind of felt myself feeling sad, wishing that, wishing I had that life, wishing I could travel back half my life before and, and live it through them almost. But I think what's amazing is that hopefully for some people, it will be this album that helps them understand themselves or um, come to peace with themselves or whatever. Um, I think this this album, I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you for your oh. honesty and for, uh, some people might shy away from it, but I would say bravery and for putting it out there. Oh, well, thank you for the, you know, really just being uh, one of uh, a sea of people that actually just pay attention and give me an opportunity to do that. Because really, like you said about when we see films and they make us feel like, I wish that I could have gone back and experienced that. This album was a device for me to do that. I think it helped me heal a lot of things because um, I created a sonic world that I could exist in and when I was making the record um you know it I don't want to sort of turn a sad corner it's very I'm very honest about the fact that you know I I have a mental illness and I take uh four different medications a day and I see a therapist once a week and that allows me to live an amazing life so I live and thrive with with mental illness with a major depressive disorder and anxiety anxiety and I have PTSD from uh, the violence that I watched and experienced as a child and um, sometimes that means that there are periods of my life that are really hard to navigate and the period before making this album was one of those periods I was very very sad and the album was this beautiful parallel sonic universe that I could escape to every day and I got to, um, even though I didn't experience the summer of love that I talk about in the song Homosexual Part One, I say, you know, it was the summer of love. And this keyboard line comes in and it washes over me. And all of the imagery of this record is about sunsets and all of my uh, fashion and clothing, these florals and these beautiful sort of this... Um, would have been, could have been 80s version of me. Um, 
where I dance in my music videos, you know, and I have these hot boyfriends and whatever. It's not real, but it's a parallel universe. Yeah. And it's one that I cre- I created because I got to do something that I think people realize I'm now sort of fascinated with, but I got to travel back in time. I got to travel back in time and um, revisit the scene of something painful and imprint a new happier memory so now when i listen to these songs um uh it's like i've got my own version of madonna's holiday or my own version of cruel summer or my own version of um i don't know what, why i'm referencing banana Rama, but they're great songs like uh, talking italian or something you know robert de niro's wedding just songs that remind me of like oh i i i did have an adolescence where these songs um, remind me of crushes and uh, approval at school and all that stuff that, that we all deserved. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, of course, going to go track by track through Homosexual in its entirety. We are going to be hearing from you about every single track, which is incredible. But thank you so much. And also... We cannot wait to see you on the stage next year. Oh my gosh. Thank you for doing this show. So many people love this. I love this. I've been a fan long before I was ever featured on the show and um, you bring a lot of people joy. So please keep doing this. We love it. I love it. We do, well, we've got two more Darren Hayes albums to go through yet. So we've got to keep doing it after this. <laughs> Well, you certainly had a giggle uh, catching up with Darren, and I was gutted to have missed it because it, from what you said and what it sounds like, he was absolutely lovely and so generous and so open. He really was. And you got to mention, though, of course, Will, because of the Call Me By Your Name story, I couldn't not call your name out loud. Yeah, I think Darren is uh, probably the only person in the world to get to be more emotional about Call Me By Your Mother's Maiden Name than I was after seeing it. <laughs> you were a wreck, weren't you? <laughs> I was absolutely uh, uh, beside myself. And actually, a lot of the, the things that Darren will talk about in this episode today are very much feelings I had when I watched this film as well. And that feeling of the passage of time moving on for you and then thinking back to, well, not thinking back to, but thinking about how things have changed and what how things could have been. Some very familiar feelings there. Uh, I know we joke about how, how emotional I was after watching that film, but, you know, I was emotional because of, of how it touched me deeply. So, Will, I don't think we need to talk about who Darren Hayes is, do we? We've done it twice before. If you're listening to this episode, I think you're a huge fan. And I don't think we need to go into any more detail on the album because we're going to go into a lot more detail about this album. No, uh, this was Darren's fifth uh, solo studio album uh, and the third to be released on Powder Sugar, which is his own uh, label. And it's just recently been released at the start of October as well. So, shall we get stuck in? Let's get stuck in. As we said, we're going to hear from Darren on every single track. And to kick things off, side one, track one, it's Let's Try Being In Love. In your eyes, adolescent 
tell you about this. I remember running home from the cinema after seeing the movie Call Me By Your Name with a flood of emotions and um, an overwhelming sense of grief. Um, grief at the loss of a teenage hood. And um, Grief for um, an acceptance in myself at the peak of my career when I could have just been happy and living in my body and feeling comfortable in my sexuality when I had all of this attention and all this youth and this beauty and um, the reality was I was so uncomfortable within myself, so rejecting of my own sexuality. But seeing this film about this young boy who had his first ever crush that was so supported by his father and this incredible conversation he had with his father where um, he was so loved for being who he was. And even though his heart was smashed into a million pieces, um, this boy got to experience his sexuality, his sensuality, his joy for life with every fiber of his being instead of the experience that I had had growing up in the 1970s and then growing up um, as a person in the public eye. So um, I was also nearing 50, nearing my midlife and starting to feel invisible. So Let's Try Being In Love was this desperate call, this um, this plea, this um, very ancient kind of scream from within to still live, to still feel. And you can hear this in the middle age of the song where um, I'm saying um, I'm confused about where I am in my life. Am I by your side? Am I on my own? Do I dare to speak? Will I die alone? Am I five decades? Am I 24? Um, I'm asking these questions uh, of complete um, contrast and juxtaposition because that's how I felt in my life. Musically, um, you know, I'm absolutely obsessed with uh, the fact that it's you know, it has elements of Giorgio Moroda. It is my first sort of exploration into what will become this disco sound on the record, this uh, journey of education that I put myself on where I really understood who my musical heroes were influenced by. So this isn't just an album that tells you that I grew up listening to George Michael and Madonna. No, it's me understanding that George Michael and Madonna were listening to Chic, were listening to disco, um, that their musical heroes were often gay pioneers, that uh, people like um, Patrick Cowley, um, like Sylvester, 
um, uh, even some of the producers that they were working with were um, deeply indebted to queer black dance floors and the music that was coming up out of uh, Chicago, out of New York, out of San Francisco. So I was researching that music and um, looking at the synthesizers, the drum machines, um, the music that was being made back during that time. And that's sort of what I was trying to achieve with this song. So let's try being in love. It's an incredible album opener. And I think it introduces us to so many new things, especially as, again, this is Darren Hay's first album for a decade. But we're introduced to this funkier new sound. We've got these huge, lengthy tracks throughout the album that are really given the space they need to build and grow. And it's the introduction to this entire theme of the album, the title of the album, as Darren says himself. And this is... It's a it's a refreshing reminder of how Darren has such a brilliant ear for lyrics, for music production. Because again, as he as he shares, all of this is him. He's just put his heart and soul uh, lyrically, orally, lyrically, and orally, <laughs> and productionally uh, in, into this. I'm not saying no, that not one. Do that. And this, of course, was the lead single as well. So we heard this in January early this year. I think when we did the spin episode, we spoke about this song. We knew we'd heard this brand new song. We had it in our lives. We didn't know what else was to come there when we recorded that episode. And we had no idea. We could only wish and hope that there was a whole album. But as Darren said, when we had a chat with him, he this was in the making for years. Uh, and I think you can tell as well the quality of the songwriting and the production and the just the the levels of detail in every single track. It's definitely a, a huge work of art, isn't it? I probably a very much a labour a labour of love as well. So track two now. Do you remember? Nineteen nineties no cell phones. If you want to meet someone you had to leave your home. We can dance or we could fuck. I can see from bedroom as it you don't The order of the songs, the sequence, the track listing on this album is obviously different to the artistic process that I went through and the recording process. And I, I released singles that were much more up-tempo and joyous because my experience of making the record began, as I explained with Let's Try Being In Love, it began with uh, a feeling of desperation and, and sadness, actually. I had... Um, cut myself off from the world in a lot of ways. I had told myself that I'd retired from music. Um, and that meant that, um, I was not in the best space, uh, from a mental health point of view. And later on, as we discuss the other tracks on the record, um, you'll hear that and how I crawled myself out of those situations. But these tracks in particular, like, do you remember they sprang from this joyous 
acceptance that I was fully back, that I was making music again, and um, that I knew I wanted to celebrate the end of a journey, the end of a journey out of darkness. And this kind of decision to go back and reimagine what my childhood, what my teenage years might have looked like if I had have been able to accept myself for who I am. Um, Do You Remember is fascinating to me because it's the song Chained to You, my Savage Garden co-write with Daniel Jones. Um, It's sort of me writing another song from the same point of view, but with 25 years experience as a man, 17 years married as a gay man. Uh, But I'm talking about the same boyfriend. Chained to You is uh, about my first ever boyfriend, my first kiss on a dance floor. But this is the much more explicit version of that. Um, Now with the ability to produce my own records, to understand which drum machines to use, the 909, of course, Uh, how to use a Lindrum how to get those big, fat, thick bass sounds that I loved, um, understanding what it was I loved about Nile Rodgers. You know, Nile Rodgers as a producer today that everyone loves, well, when he was making records for Dinah Ross and Madonna, he was speaking in a code to gay people. You know, when he was making records like um, I'm Coming Out for Dinah Ross, that was no accident. He was speaking to a gay audience. And here is me speaking to my gay audience, you know, really uh, admitting, you know, there I was at a gay club. It was called Splash. Um, I'm in, um, you know, Chelsea in the 1990s. I'm talking about uh, how I was on the prowl that night. You know, I was young, I was single for the first time as a gay man and um, it's all there in this song. Also, this song becomes this sort of um, like a darker um, flashback moment halfway through. Um, It's almost a second song halfway through. Um, You know, it's five and a half minutes long, almost six minutes long and the second half of it is almost like the night mix in some ways. It's like... um, what happens after we left the club and um do you remember is some of my favorite homage to records i was listening to uh, back then whether that was like um prince uh, jam and lewis um the time um soul to soul um early um madonna collaborations with uh Mirwais, um yeah, it's just fat with a P-H-A-T. And uh, I really, really had fun making this record. There is so much to love in this one. And for a long-term Hayes fan, uh, just the references in this track and the throwbacks to kind of growing up to first love, to what was going on, you know, lots of references to music like Ray of Light. And uh, you know many many others in there as well. It's alongside that super high, wonderful voice that I think is just so familiar. But at the same time, the beat, the synth, is delivering something eighties, but also something very very now. Definitely, because I could hear those Prince influences that Darren spoke about. But with this one, I almost heard like a bit of the Neptunes. Or something like that, just with how it was able to be so sparse, but so dance floor filling as well. I also love how 
well, there's two mergers that I love in this song. One, how it merges from track one into this one. You can just tell yes. that you are listening to a whole album, a complete piece of work. What a piece of work. No, what a piece of work. Uh, and also how it merges into that lush, like almost Stranger Things-like outro as well. Again, just this isn't three-minute pop songs. This is whole tracks that are stories within themselves that have different scenes that are all part of this bigger picture. And it's worth mentioning as well, if you haven't seen, there are also some 12-inch extended versions of these songs. So they just go on and on and on. And that's a good thing. Yeah, Darren is a big fan of 12 inches. As we, well, I think as, we as, as we, absolutely, absolutely. Also, Will, 1990s, no cell phones. I love that spoken word segment. It just, well, I dare say it takes you back a little bit, doesn't it? It takes you back a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> and I still remember about, you know, uh, I think it was a line from Crush, wasn't it? You know, I wish that I could be 11 again when E.T. was my friend. Yeah, his songs are filled with those references that, you know, we all do remember them. But you definitely, I think through the years, we really do feel like we've gotten to know Darren. And it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of those what were quite sweet, thoughtful references to childhood and growing up, you know, we that's one side. We're now with this album getting kind of more of a re- real view on it as well mm. but with no less affection towards the music uh and the song as process well said actually so let's move on then track three a little death The recording process of this record was split into two main chunks. Um, I recorded it all with my own equipment. Uh, One half of it was at home in my home recording studio. And the other half of it, I took all of my gear um, up north to Muir Woods in Northern California for about a month And um, I was completely alone, which was necessary. And that was the first half of the recording process. And A Little Death was was recorded then. Um, And very necessary, I think, to be alone because this is a song about a period in my life before I met Richard. Um, A period in my life that um, I think many people people in long relationships will will relate to this where you have a whole history and you have a whole uh, secret part of your life not just necessarily secret but you have a whole um maybe sacred romantic part of your life or old flames or that sort of thing that you don't necessarily need to or want to share with your partner but um it goes um deep in you and um i'm a monogamous person i'm a faithful person so um 
you know, these stories lay dormant, but um, on this record, I think because I was looking at my life at a crossroads as I turned 50 and I was looking at all the woulda, coulda, shouldas of my life, um, this song um, is really uh, about uh, a, a sort of... Um, uh, a could have been moment, you know, and, and, a, and a funny one as well, because, uh, you know, I'm talking about having feelings for someone so secretly that, um, I always assumed it was reciprocal and this particular encounter in the song talks about how it probably wasn't reciprocated and the heartbreak of finding out that information. But this record sounds like it has guitar solos all over it, and it does, but I did them by singing. And what I would do is I would put my voice through guitar amps until it sounded squelchy and distorted the way that I wanted a guitar to sound, which is really interesting because it's a window into how I've been able to produce records all my life because I used to sing musical parts to musicians my entire career. Even to Daniel Jones, that's, <laughs> that's how we used to write together. You know, he would play some chords, but I would also play riffs and uh, guitar parts and because I would sing them to him and then he would have to interpret them on a keyboard. Um, I love that this song feels like uh, the end of an 80s movie. I love that it feels like the credits of a film. Um, and it's a song to drive to, you know, turn up loud in your car and just drive and cry your eyes out to that person that could have been. Uh, and I'm glad that this person isn't, by the way. I'm so glad I never ended up with this person. But it's really great uh, to write songs uh, about what, what could have been. I love how, like, 1980s film soundtrack this one feels like really chunky chords, but with those twinkling electronics. And I mentioned Stranger Things before, but even though it's, I don't think it's an obvious influence on this sound, I definitely feel it's there. It is. It's a slower pace to this, but I do enjoy the kind of the the, the relentlessly marching beat to this. And yeah, I love this idea as well that the what ifs almost it's like a spiral or a tornado. They get bigger and bigger until you look back and you you almost paint the whole picture of what could have been. Track four now, Poison Blood. Rubbing headed My mother has it My grandma had it I guess I got it Once you got it, it drains emotions, it sinks your feelings, another life rests too. I've spoken a lot about Poison Blood in press releases and leading up to the single, but for those who don't know, it's, uh, it's a song about mental health and it's about the fact that my um, family on my mother's side, who I adore, um, we have um, a hereditary 
inclination toward uh, a major depressive disorder. And uh, three, I think, people in my bloodline have committed suicide. And um, I very proudly talk about my mental health because I thrive today because of access to therapy and life-saving medication. But Poison Blood, uh, you know, in the lyrics, it was really important to me to have this one central message in um, the song, which was that even though my mental health comes with incredible challenges. I also consider it to be a superpower and an essential part of me and something I would never change, which is why I refer to it as um, blood. You know, it's, uh, I said to my mother uh, when she listened to this song and she cried, she tried to apologize for having given me this unique quality. And I said, I would never want anyone else's blood running through my veins than yours. But I say, um, it's a blessing, a gift and a curse, but every day is a decision to stay with my poison blood. There's a, there's a rhyming scheme or not necessarily rhyming scheme, but a, um, a lyrical device I use with tents in this song where I say, um, Robin had it. And I'm talking about Robin Williams in the very beginning of the song. Um, and uh, my mother has it. My grandma had it. I guess I have it too. And that's the way I'm letting the listener know um, how when I talk about someone in the past tense, it's because they've either passed away or they have um, they've suffered at their own hands. Um, but if they're in the present tense, it means that they're still living and, and thriving with mental health. Um, Production-wise, uh, it's based around uh, vocal samples. It was originally written on guitar. Um, and then I transferred those guitar chords to um, piano, which gives it this kind of um, interesting... Um, simplicity, I think. And I used um, a synclavia to give it um, this sort of 80s feel. It reminds me in some ways of um, some of my favorite melancholy 80s songs like Cry um, or um, Love Thy Will Be Done. Um, Godly and Cream is the, uh, the artist. I'm talking about when I want to refer to the song Cry. Um, just these thick, synth, um, rich, um, really um, saturated sonic walls of sound. And I wanted it to be a bed for my vocal to be this pleading voice. And um, it was written very quickly. And I didn't really think twice about how confessional this song would be. I just knew that I had to share this with the world and I felt that if more people spoke about mental health, maybe we can destigmatize it. The honesty, it continues, just a song uh, all about mental health and like Darren says, you know, using blood as a way to describe how it feels and what it is for people. I think there's a lot that people can relate to with this track, isn't there? 
There is. And, and I think we're talking about mental health so much more now, and that is such an incredible thing. Uh, but it's always amazing when someone in the public eye does it, when they choose to share that message. You know, Darren, if he wanted to, could just go out and write incredible pop songs and we'd all love them. But he's being honest about himself, about his life. And also not only talking about mental health, but also talking about his struggles with his sexuality. Um, it's so inspiring to so many people. And I love with this one as well, it's definitely feels like a slower track, a more kind of somber track where the music fits the theme rather than kind of being a bit of a juxtaposition and being a little bit more upbeat, uh, but still very much electronic. And that guitar in this one is really impressive. In fact, there's there's almost a bit of a Twin Peaks thing to the guitar in this one. And I hope Darren doesn't mind me chucking in all these things that I hear. I think he'd, I think he'd like that. I, I think Twin Peaks would be a reference Darren's very much up for with it. Twin, Twin Peaks and Stranger Things. He's a big sci-fi fan, isn't he? Mm. So next up then, track five, Hey Matt. This murder. Hey Matt is probably my uh, favourite song on the record. You probably shouldn't have favourites. Um, it's this song and Feels Like It's Over that are really my uh, my babies. Um, they cut to the core of who I am, who I, you know, who I was when I started making the record and the, the place that I had to crawl out from. So the mental state that I was in when I began the record um, it's all here in Hey Matt. Um, I was not in a good headspace. And my friend Matt um, is one of the first friends that I made when Richard and I moved to Los Angeles. I met him at uh, a Star Wars convention of all places. He was working with um, a talent that was appearing at one of the, um, uh, the shows. And um, I had been invited, I think, to, yes, to be a part of a panel. So Matt was, was working with someone else who was on the panel. And we just stayed in touch, really. And Matt, to me, represents um, the beginning of friendships with people that I made in L.A. who weren't on my payroll, which sounds crazy. But when you've been doing this job for as long as I have... It's just a matter of course that you become friends with people that you work with and that creates a really unhealthy imbalance of power where um, you become friends with people who you employ and it's, it's unhealthy. Um, you can never really truly be equals because someone else's livelihood depends on maintaining a peaceful and happy relationship with you. And you can imagine that makes you feel paranoid. Does this person really like me or do they just want to be employed by me? So when I, when I came to LA, um, just meeting new friends and um, having to earn their trust, earn their respect and vice versa, me trusting new people um, who at first didn't really know much about me 
was a big, big deal. So Matt was one of those first friends that I met. The reason I'm telling you that is years later, we were so close. I was going through a really rough, depressive period and I called Matt up on the phone because I just was so low and I wanted so desperately to talk to someone and tell them how I felt. But I got Matthew's voicemail and I was kind of relieved in that way you are when you want to reach out to people, but you don't want to. We want to connect, but we don't. And uh, for some strange reason, I hung up. I didn't leave a voicemail message, but I had my laptop with me in the car. Ever the artist, I pressed record on what back then I think was something in maybe photo booth, like a video. And I recorded a very similar monologue to what you hear in the song. I was driving around in LA at night, speaking out loud, saying all the things I wish that I could have said to Matt, but didn't have the courage to. And that movie sat on my laptop for almost two years. And I was so afraid that if anything ever happened to me, or God forbid, um, you know, as someone that has had suicidal um, ideations, if, if, if I ever had done something terrible and regrettable, that someone might find that and think that that was, you know, some sort of farewell note. So I ended up taking that video and sort of transcribing that and turning that into lyrics because the artist in me knew that it was important. It was something that I wanted to express and it became the basis for this song. Musically, uh, I feel like this is kind of the cousin to the song Darkness. Um, I love how, again, it's not constricted by time. This is uh, the longest song on the album, I believe. And the, the second part of it is kind of like this dark symphony. I'm really proud of the the string arrangements and this kind of surreal dream, like driving, I don't know, electronic highway that I've made. It really uh, encompasses everything that I love about the 1980s, everything I love about synthwave and uh, 80s synth pop, but in a dark sort of retro wave way. Hey Matt there, one of Darren's favourites and I think one of my favourites as well because if we do think about this as a concept album and Darren hasn't said it's a concept album but there's something about it for me that makes it feel that way then this really is a scene stealer and based on what we were saying before about the set list for the live show and having to keep in a lot of the hits and you know, not wanting to put too much of the new album in there. I don't think this is going to be on the set list, but I think this song would make the most incredible live performance. It's phenomenal, isn't it? It's. Uh, I'm just trying to decide, actually, make a decision, but it is one of my favourite songs on the album. Uh, and I love the story of how this song came about. Again, using a low point in his life uh, and turning that into a nine-minute electro pop song uh is i think just you really have to listen to the words to understand how he was feeling then there's some re- very repeated words in there in particular um to look towards but i think musically as well 
is just the the electronics and in nine minutes there's just so much going on uh so much instrumental going on later on in the track as well and this is you know wonderful mid-track mid-album track to have as well and i like what he said about wanting to have create genuine friendships that weren't friendships forged with people he work works with i could definitely relate to that as well because we're just colleagues is that what you mean well oh dan <laughs> we'll talk about it later <laughs> we are friends though aren't we Okay, <laughs> but musically, as you said, I love the almost quite airy, ghostly electronics that kick off the track before that beat comes in. And also the vocal treatment on this one just adds to that kind of whole filmic, scenic feel to the album. Track six now, and we're heading into act one of Homosexual. <laughs> tell you when I knew the album was called Homosexual because it was always called Homosexual and I can't tell you when I knew this song was the song but it just was because it started with the music and um, told me what the song was about. I think it was this obvious reclamation of the word. It had a very sexual feeling to it and yet a joyous celebration. There's an obvious retro feeling to the song. And like everything on the record, you know, um, my idea was to almost create a parallel universe. This is almost like the soundtrack to a movie that never got made or the music to a life that I could have lived, a parallel life maybe. So the colours... And everything that I chose on this album, the peach colour is really significant because that's what I remember from the mid-80s. That colour comes from um, fashion that was around everywhere. It comes from the back cover and the inside cover of Prince's Sign of the Times. Um, It was uh, just everywhere at the time. So I think of the colour of this song as being peach. I don't know why. I think of peach as being from the movie Call Call Me By Your Name. Uh, And there's something throbbing and the tempo of this song is just very sexual. So uh, that's really all there is to say about this song uh, in terms of like where it was uh, imagined from, where it was born from when it comes to like the psyche and the deep subconscious. Lyrically, I absolutely wanted to create a new association with shame. So for as long as I can remember... Um, my association with the word homosexual was obviously a negative one. Uh, I think that there's obviously a huge uh, history of uh, negative associations with the word being used uh, first 
um, in religious context or in clinical contexts as a way to uh, uh, discriminate against people like me, um, to use sexuality as some sort of illness or um, mental illness, um, which is just horrific. For me, my first memories of this word uh, were married with the emergence of HIV and AIDS. They're also deeply rooted in religious dogma and fear and shrouded in shame. And so I wanted to infuse this word with a new meaning, just like I wanted to infuse my memories with new memories. So I created uh, a new adjective, which was the, the best compliment I could ever give you in the world, the best way I could ever describe the person I love, the best way I could ever describe myself. Uh, I, I, and it's a word that I, I can't put my finger on, you know, I'm talking about this quality about myself that's so wonderful. It has this je ne sais quoi, this, uh, I can't put it into words, but the, the best way I can describe it to you is that it's homosexual. And in doing that, uh, it becomes the highest compliment and the most mystical, magical, wonderful word. And instead of something that was used to denigrate me and make me feel ashamed, it's a, it's a word that's used to elevate me. Uh, my personal choice, it's not my way of saying that everyone has to reclaim this word, but for me, I had such a horrible association with my sexuality and with this word I needed to climb out from underneath it. And so what better way to do so than in this joyous pop song? I dissociated, I would say, in the years that I was making this record and conceiving it. My actual life wasn't happy, but the sonic world that I created in this album was absolute bliss and ecstasy. And this song really personifies that, especially the second half. I could literally swim in the sound of this song forever i love it so much homosexual there and this is three acts two in this track and then uh act two proper as the penultimate track on the album and for me it's act two of this first bit from about five minutes on that i absolutely i mean the whole song is great but i absolutely love uh the synth and production for about five minutes on absolutely fantastic of course, what's also great is the reclaiming of the word homosexual, uh, making peace with it, feeling comfortable with it, and then reveling in it in this epic track. And I think lyrically, this might be one of my favourites, because right from the off, those lines, it's not a blessing and it's not a curse, a crystal technical and neon tour de force. It's not a feeling you can describe, a secret lexicon of love behind your eyes. This feels like, I could just imagine this and I could be wrong, but this being written as a kind of stream of consciousness mm. before the music came, I could be wrong, but it feels like it just kind of poured out of him like poetry. Also, as you said, the, the second half of Act One, it, it really, this is Darren doing every single thing on here, and it feels like complete DIY funk a la Prince or George Michael, as he said. Those synth patterns, they become so familiar because the song is so long. But then later in the track, because every track here is so long, so every song has got a later part to it, the house piano comes in, and then it just seems to explode in slow-mo, and there's these fuzzy effects. I just think this is... the Every song on here is the type of music that we talk about and we love, because it's not two-minute TikTok songs. It's just 
songs that are just keep on going. So track seven then, music video. Music video is the most challenging song technically to record because it uses a technique called very speed. So you'll notice that the vocal change on my voice is not some modern plug-in or uh, pitch shifting or auto-tune or anything like that. It's a process by which uh, I had to take the track and the music and slow it down by the precise amount uh, an actual percentage that took me ages to work out uh, so that I would record my voice to a slowed down track and then when the track was played back my voice would be pitched ever so slightly up so that it would sound in my mind it would sound like a, a teenage version of me or a young me I wanted it to have an androgynous quality. I wanted it to have a youthful quality. Now, this came from my obsession with uh, Prince and his character Camille, which Prince uh, invented during the Black Album and um, Sign of the Times and Love Sexy. And you'll hear uh, his use of this technique uh, on uh, offcuts on Crystal Ball. Uh, one of the most famous versions of this is in a song called If I Was Your Girlfriend. It's also in You've Got the Look his duet with Sheena Easton. If you get it wrong, you sound like a chipmunk. So for me, this involved um, a process of experimenting with what percentage uh, would I slow the track down in order to let my voice sound like a young me. And I didn't want it to be humorous because what I'm singing about in the song is very, very serious. This is, again, me using this um, narrative technique on the record where I'm constantly flipping from present day to the past and this is a song obviously in the past I'm talking about my experience of being uh, a child in 1982 and then in 1984 and so I wanted to tell these very serious stories about how I was bullied and how uh, even people in power like my school principal or other children in school were the first people to really lecture me, bully me, threaten me for being gay, for being born the person that I was. And in the chorus of the song, it had to be this explosively joyous pop song. I had to outdo myself in my mind. This had to be um, one of the most infectious celebratory choruses, like something you would hear in a musical, like something... I did in, say, Crush 1980 Me, but better. I wanted you to imagine, just like in a music video, just like I am imagining when I was a child, that I could escape the sadness, the torment in my life and go to this magical place that I imagined when I watched music videos. And I'm imagining and telling you how I survived those years and how I, I actually imagined a life that would eventually lead me to become... A, a pop star so this is another one of those songs like hey matt 
where you just can't help but hear every single word of this story. And most likely you're going to relate to it as well. And I just love how it's so, so, so heartbreaking. But because of the playfulness of the music, it almost kind of sugarcoats the story. And the vocal and production of the song itself almost sound like the 80s music video that would have been playing during his childhood at home where he was going through such a tough time. And once again, there are so many references to the DeLorean and the VCR and Billie Jean. And Will, quick question for you, actually. If you yes. were to direct me in a music video, what would that look like? What a, what a strange question. Is this like some sort of fantasy you've had? Well, told what to do? It's just very much direct, directly linked to the song, actually. I'd have you picking up dogs doings is. <laughs> Track eight now, and this is Euphoric Equation. In the beginning, there was darkness. There was no mercy. It was heartless. Sometimes, to survive this life, you gotta learn to run. Stay ahead of the night. Some days, when the fire inside dies, you gotta find your mark, cheat the light, banish darkness. Euphoric Equation is a similar survivor story, but very much in the present tense. This is 2022 Darren Hayes as the toughened survivor, you know, someone that has this, this hard exterior, these survival skills. And um, I'm really giving myself a pep talk and I'm explaining how I've managed to survive everything I've been through, um, through always staying one step ahead of what I've felt was this constantly, um, um, threatening and, uh, approaching darkness. This, this, uh, this, this almost like this stalker, this hunter that's, that's been hunting me all my life. And I make these illusions about finding your light both on stage, because, uh, you know, one has to look beautiful, darling, but also uh, finding the light in terms of choosing to see the positive, the glass half full, being um, the anti-pessimist. There is, um, there's so much fun in this song, so much high energy. Um, I, I wanted to experiment with something that... Um, is so done and so dated, which was auto-tune. It, I felt like auto-tune had come and gone and uh, I'd never touched it, ever. But for me, I, I wanted to do something that showed this... Um, well, I'm talking about this spell, this this equation, you know. In the middle of the song, I say, darkness and light are joy adjacent and both cannot exist in the same equation. So I'm giving you this... Uh, recipe, this kind of alchemy, this this magician spell almost for how you too can survive. But I'm talking about energy and I really wanted to turn my voice into literal energy as well in the choruses. And 
that's why I used auto-tune turned up to 1 billion. Um, I wanted it to be very obvious and um, I wanted to make a really slamming kind of modern dance track uh, to convey something that had a deeper, darker message because uh, I've really wanted to keep enjoying on this record this contrast between sweet and sour, happy and sad uh, because overall on the surface I think this record as as a piece, as an album sounds like a dance record but my favourite dance records at the heart of them always have some sense of uh, whether it be sadness or a sense of um, having overcome great obstacle I think actually, Dan, this is my favourite song on the album because... Oh, really? Yeah, I just get so sucked into it. Again, it's hard not to just feel every word and picture everything that's being described in that song because, again, it's juxtaposing, you know, a fantastic electro-dance pop song against some harrowing scenes and thoughts about uh, a, a violent father a troubled a troubled youth but at the same time it's done to i guess a beat uh, a synth that reminds me a little bit of uh, get together by madonna oh. um but with a bit of vocoder thrown in as well and again the classic hues and changes in darren's vocal delivery that's just so quintessentially him i just absolutely love it i think that's what i love about this album i think it it's quite a new sound for Darren but it also feels very him and as I said when I spoke to him it feels like all of his back catalogue kind of is is influencing this sound but this is a dance record really so I suppose uh, similar to Confessions on a Dance Floor uh, and as you mentioned the Madonna track there because this one they're all, it's all electronic but this one feels really kind of quite dark and quite synth wavy but actually, the start of it with that that kind of real drama of that spoken word intro, that gives me real Pet Shop Boys vibes. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure he's a fan. And I'm sure they're a fan. And also, Will, this is one of the short tracks on the album, just over four minutes long. There are tracks on here going up to nine minutes, 18. So this really does feel like a, a bite-sized thing. Track nine, then. Nocturnal Animal. When I was first releasing songs from this record, um, I try not to pay too much attention to comments online, but I was secretly smug about the fact that the few criticisms I received for releasing up-tempo or joyful songs, um, I knew that this record was littered with really deep and somewhat uh, dark and downright filthy sounding tracks. Nocturnal Animal, I knew, was one of these songs that people who loved 
my work on the tension and the spark or um, just some of my more uh, industrial, darker music would love. And um, I might have said ye of little faith a few times online to, <laughs> to people who were dismissing some of my, my more joyful songs because I knew these songs existed on the record. Um, this is a very dark song, you know. It To me, it sounds like the painting um, The Garden of Earthly Delights. And I almost called the song that. Um, but it is a song about trauma and very specifically trauma responses. Most people know about fight or flight, uh, but the other responses to trauma are to fawn and also to freeze. I learned this through therapy and uh, I realized that I had been displaying these behaviors most of my life just from the violence that I witnessed as a young child, um, mostly committed against my mother. So it started off really as a very primal way to process some of that anger, some of that trauma that I had witnessed and some of those behaviors that um, I wanted to acknowledge and peacefully release and let go of. What I love about the treatment of this song is that it has this religious tone to it. And I was reading a lot of uh, the New Testament, not because I'm a religious person, but specifically I was making these allusions to the sins of the Father because I speak about my Father a lot. Um, I was really looking at, you know, this painting of the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is essentially hell on earth. And for me, that's what this song and these feelings felt like when I was a young person. And um, this sort of manic, almost surrendering celebration of the experience of admitting that you are sort of fucked up by what has happened to you when you're a survivor of trauma. I think what a lot of people don't realize when they're experiencing something like this is that it's very easy to keep the secrets of the people that abuse us because we're so embarrassed. I know as a child, I never wanted to speak about what happened to me. I spoke about that in the song Euphoric Equation, but you know, it took me almost 25 years to tell another person that my father used to hit my mother as a child. And the burden of that secret, I think, um, it slowly poisons you. And so there is this sort of religious ecstasy in this song because I'm unburdening myself of that. And so the music has this kind of um, uh, biblical uh, feeling to it and, and almost this sort of religious ecstasy to it and it just made sense for me to marry these two worlds and have these choirs and this sort of um, religious fervor in the song. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs on the record. I can't tell you why, but it just unburdens me in in some ways. Um, I love all of the sort of uh, 
mystical Middle Eastern um, scales and uh, I had to learn <laughs> a lot of music theory on this one uh, the hard way just by uh, clinkety clunkety working out with my fingers what worked and what didn't in these keys because I do not know music theory uh, but it was a lot of fun and I love the sort of woo and yay and all those sort of like expressions that I have because I'm essentially saying, you know, mental illness, trauma, woo, yay, yay for us, right? And it's in a very sarcastic, cynical way because obviously if I, if I could have not gone through these things, uh, I would have much preferred that. But like millions of people, uh, I have survived this stuff and it is in the past and um, it's gone. So Nocturnal Animal and just another title that paints a picture and feels like its own scene within this collection. On this one, I love how industrial, how robotic it is. In fact, the synths at the start, quite Kraftworkian. And that's not an influence that I would have thought would be an immediate one for Darren. Mm. Um, but then that brooding vocal comes in and the kind of fuzz effect. And it doesn't feel like Kraftwerk at all. It feels like, well, something else. Something quite sci-fi. Well, I think the production is intentionally harsh to, again, reflect the content of the song. Or The other thing that I enjoy in this one is the yeahs and the woos as well. Again, it's just taking a very serious subject matter and making it... Um, making it personally very enjoyable to listen to and that those opening lines you pay a fee to get a dog you have to prove your home is suitable but anyone can be a dad and your dysfunction was transmissible that is not hiding behind any uh poetry on this one or any metaphors you know straight to the point here isn't he well, I think he's gone a long way. You know, he's he's in 50 now. So I think he's past beating around the bush with these things. And, you know, good for him, really. And of course, I said uh, sci-fi sound, sounds on this. And we do know he's a big fan of sci-fi. It reminded me when we did the tweet along, we also afterwards had a quiz on Instagram stories. And you wrote the quiz. And it was the, one of the questions was uh, what film series is he a huge fan of? And of course it's Star Wars. And we said before uh, that he met a friend at Star Wars convention and I accidentally selected that Star Trek was his favourite and you jumped down my throat because I got it wrong. Uh, well, you know, if you're a fan of either of those franchises, you will feel very passionately about that franchise and hate it when some clueless numpties wades in and gets the two mixed up. I am looking at you there. Well, and you told me off on Star Trek Day when I said, may the fourth be with you. Don't start. You're just going to wind me up for the rest of the episode. So just don't. Don't start. Track 10 now uh, feels like it's over. I guess I'm most famous for being someone that sings love songs and to most people who don't know my name, I think I've written and sung two of the most hummable love songs of the last 30 years 
And that's a huge burden and a huge pressure to live down when you're making music that doesn't sound like love songs. Uh, most of my music from the beginning of Savage Garden all the way through to this album has been anything but perfect romantic love ballads. It just happens that two of them were number one songs in the USA. Having said that, love and relationships are what continue to drive and fascinate me. But as a 50-year-old man, I am aware that uh, the way I viewed love 25 years ago is so different to the way that I view it today. It's so much more nuanced and, um, and real. And it's impossible to repeat that. Um, this song, I think, is a real love song. Uh, it's devastating. It is like um, looking at the face of somebody who you love and uh, they have lived a life and maybe when they were younger you thought what you loved about them was that they were just perfect and flawless and youthful and beautiful. But now this face is, it's been aged by time and smiles and frowns and tears and sunlight. And so there are lines and creases in the face and there are scars and there are imperfections. And that's, to me, what love really is about. And it's not all rainbows and puppy dogs and standing on mountains and bathing in the sea. That is infatuation. That is, um, that's when you first meet someone. And that is um, the beginning of one stage of love. But love goes through so many more complex journeys and the idea of um, being with someone through thick and thin, through uh, ups and downs is that you have a shared experience and you have a shared life together and you have wounds and I wanted to write a song about that, a real love song. And sometimes love is devastating and um, that's what feels like it's over is about. It's not clear at all. And um, I think that that sums up relationships in general. They're messy and they're imperfect and they're beautiful. So this is, it's, it's very sad, isn't it? It's, it's not a love song. It's very sad but at the same time, very beautiful. And, you know, this not something isn't ending in a raging, blazing row, like a lot of our recordings do. This is something that I guess you could say is petered out rather than being cut down and cut short dramatically. Not that it's petered out on the album, to be no. fair. No, absolutely not. Although I do think it's really interesting because, of course, it's called Feels Like It's Over, and it comes at a point towards the end of the album and it could it could have been an album closer, I think, but we know that actually 
there are some incredible tracks still to come. One of the things that really stands out for me on this one is the falsetto. And we've heard it throughout the album, but on this one, I really do think it takes center stage and just adds a new texture to this track. Again, it's electronic. Again, it's perfectly placed within this whole collection, but adding something different as well. Track 11 then, All You Pretty Things. spoken enough about the fact that one of the sonic influences for me on this album was the era of the 12-inch vinyl single, the extended mix, the remix. And that's what really informed a lot of the musical landscape of this record. So from 1984 all the way through to, say, 1989, I was someone that collected 12-inch remixes extended mixes and that's why the arrangements of songs on this record are so long um, that spans across every song that's why some songs have two parts that's why they break down that's why sometimes they um, veer off into other landscapes and uh, all you pretty things uh, is a real example of that the subject matter is very serious it's a tribute to the people who lost their lives at the Pulse uh, nightclub mass shooting in the United States, in Florida, which was a devastating, devastating, horrible tragedy. And it occurred at a time in my life when I wasn't making music, so I was affected by it deeply. Uh, I think the I've spoken a lot about this in the press, but the main things that touched me were the fact that Gay spaces, nightclubs, you know, we always assumed were safe spaces because the queer community has always been a vulnerable community. We created our nightclubs and our spaces uh, as these bunkers of safety, really. So there was always this assumed protection that when you were within the walls of your community and those that you love, that no harm could come to you. And that illusion was shattered uh, during this tragedy. Also, this was an even smaller section of the community because this was mostly the Latin queer community. I loved the idea of immortalizing each person with just one quality about what their loved ones thought about them. So that's why I list things like, you know, Brenda being an amazing mum or Louis Smile lighting up uh, the theme park that he worked in or uh, Eddie in his top hat, you know, just frozen, immortalised forever under a disco ball. And then I make this declaration. I say we've got to dance to remember them because in the same way that uh, HIV just decimated an entire generation of queer people, in the 90s, um, but this really, really began um, 
when HIV first started emerging, um, which was at the end of the disco era, nightclubs and dance floors have been places where people have gone to cry their sorrows away. And I say, we're going to dance to remember them. And the second half of this song, I throw it down. And everything I've ever learned in the studio, all of my understanding about dance music, about production, all of the skills that I studied over the last few years in my exile, I put it to use. And um, I hope I did everyone proud. Sonically, I love this. It's so trancey. And I spent months and months working on layers and layers of sounds so that this became something that uh, that would live on forever. Well, I think this is not only possibly my favourite song on the album, but also probably one of my favourite Darren Hayes songs of all time. Wow, really? I mean, it is one of my favourites on the album, but why? Wh- how so? Because there are so many out there to choose from. There's just there's also there's so much to say about this song, but musically, I think it just it's perfectly split. It's a third George Michael, it's a third Prince, and it's a third Darren Hayes. And I think this is the track where he really nails that kind of that sound and that vision that you had for this album. But also, of course, it's such a heartbreaking story, and he's turned tragedy into beauty. And I think he has perfectly honored the lives of those who were lost at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, I just think it's it's such a incredible thing to to create euphoria and this incredible energy from what happened. But also I would want to throw a fourth third in there and say Giorgio Moroder as well. Oh God, yeah. A fourth third? We aren't math- mathematicians, are we? No, we're not. But we do know good music when we hear it. And I just, the just the, the beat and the, uh, and the vibe to this one is fantastic. One thing we've not really spoken about, Will, but um, just to quickly mention, the single artwork on mm. every track is phenomenal, and this is no exception. As is the album cover. I'm not going to be talking about the album artwork today. It'd be very disrespectful to do that, especially on such a brilliant, strong album. But I love the album cover. Just the colour palette is stunning. Darren is uh, is striking a real pose on a on a I don't know what that is. It's probably a a high bench, mm, uh, not... and I do I am enjoying his shirt on that as well. And you've got homosexual written across in a lovely neon uh, italic font. And I have to say, he looked he had a similar shirt on when I spoke to him. He looked absolutely dapper, and I felt so underdressed. Oh God, were you in your bloody sweats round the house sweats? I had my dressing gown on, Will. <laughs> I don't think it was a camera on, Jobby. I think that dressing gown normally falls open when we're recording, but... Accidentally. About that, the better. Mm. Accidentally on purpose. Track 12 now. That'd be my uh, autobiography title, actually. <laughs> what would yours be? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but let's move on to track number 12 now. We are alchemists. Do what you want with me. Replace the scars in me With your emotional tattoos I was never consciously looking for love The universe conspired in the 
Dear Alchemist is actually the first piece of music and the first vocal that I recorded for this album. And it was before I even knew I was making an album. So it's really important to me. The title came from um, basically overhearing the short story is uh, someone describe their potential gay child as an alchemist. And, and I loved that word and I did some research into the etymology of the word and just understanding what alchemy was, you know, the idea of making a precious element from a precious element. And in the song I say, you know, we're making gold from gold, which um, to me just speaks to sort of the endurance of difference, whether you're queer or not, I think just... I've always had this affinity with difference with my audience and with the world. And um, it's also a really sensual, horny song. You know, this is talking about um, sending out intentional or not signals to the world um, for love and for attention and for sexual validation and the potential um, danger involved in that and what that could um, invoke in a kind of a mystical, magical way, you know, that, that we are alchemists. We can create something um, just by thinking it. Um, but there's a lot going on in this, on this song. Um, I love that it's full of 909 um drum fills and snares. It reminds me of uh, Rescue Me by Madonna in some ways. And um, maybe my work with Rick Knowles back in the day, it has uh, a real sort of uh, a grand synth heavy uh, mid eighties kind of sound to it. But you can hear that I'm trying to find the sound of my new direction in this song. And this is some archeology. span is, This is where it all began in this song. Now, Dan, question for you. Do you still crave that attention, uh, validation, feeling attractive, being desired and desiring? Well, you know I do. Because yeah. I send you a little photo every morning and ask for some positivity. Oh, yeah, you do your hashtag POTD. Yeah. Post-traumatic. <laughs> Pick of the day. Oh, sorry. And it's always extremely thirsty, I have to say. Oh, thank you very much. I've forwarded them on to the police. <laughs> For me, this song, you know, another wonderful track on this album. And also, well, it's got to say, it's a 14-track album with some albums we talk about at this point where we're getting ready for the end, where sometimes even hoping that it was nine tracks. Not the case here. But for me, there's the section towards the end of the track. And we know from what Darren said that he uses his voice as an instrument throughout. Sometimes the voice will sound like guitar and sometimes the voice will sound like something else. But here it feels like the voice is being used as an instrument, as a voice. It's really just experimenting with those sounds. So, track 13, Homosexual, Act 2. Homosexual If it's all my fault Then it's all your fault Cause if man was created She's a homosexual Can't be wrong When it feels so right 
soon as I wrote Homosexual Act 1, there was a dilemma because I couldn't decide which tempo to record the song in. And I experimented with several different tempos. And one of the tempos was really slow, which is this version. So this really slow, sexy groove version existed for a while. And um, as the album developed, I realized uh, as a sort of a throwback to George Michael and a tribute to Faith, I thought, how cool would it be if I had two or three versions of the title track um, in the same way that George did with I Want Your Sex? So... That's sort of why I toyed around with the idea of having different versions. But then this became its whole other thing. It has a totally different melody and a different point of view. You know, this song is very defiant. This song is a real F you to anyone that has a problem with me, has a problem with the title of the record, uh, has a problem with queer people in general. I'm deliberately um, owning myself and uh, wearing this coat of many colours proudly in the song. And I'm talking to those that judge and use religion as an excuse. And I essentially say, I'm, if you think I'm, you know, we're all God's children, then God made me exactly as I am. And, uh, that's, that's essentially the point of the song is to say that I'm exactly as, uh, as nature intended. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with God and maybe, uh, maybe she'll explain a few things to you. So <laughs> it was really fun to be able to, uh, have this much confidence to, uh, to shout back with music and, and, uh, charm and wit and swagger and some funk guitar at um, religious dogma uh, with the confidence and the love that I have for myself now in this song. Lyrically with this one, I just love that double drop of controversy from the off, or maybe it's even a triple drop. If it's all my fault, then it's all your fault because if man was created in the image of God, then maybe she's a homosexual. You can imagine people losing their rag to that. Oh, absolutely. And that's what uh, that's what we're here for, totally. I love the fact with Homosexual Act 2, it is the same song, but at the same time, completely different. Yeah, it's wonderful that each part of that song, each version of that song gets its own spot in the limelight because this one is so funky and the electronic bass, the drum breaks, the vocoder, this, again, very Giorgio Moroder. And then that brings us on to the last track on the album. This is Birth. Does it surprise you that the hardest song to finish on the album was called Birth? That the hardest song to 
give birth to was called birth? No? Well, it was. Uh, this song was so necessary, but my gosh, it was a difficult birth because it was talking about all the stuff I didn't want to admit, you know, um, at its core, this is the ugliest stuff about myself that I don't want to admit. And it sprang from a conversation I had in therapy about how I was finding it hard to finish the album because there was still some things I didn't want to say. And um, one of the things that were coming up was that I do really struggle with depression and anxiety and one of the physical aspects of my anxiety is sometimes I have this feeling in my stomach. It's like a, it's a pit of dread and some days I describe it as a feeling of like having like a rotten watermelon inside me or if you've ever seen inside an avocado that's gone rotten and you look inside it, um, that's how my insides, I imagine they look and they feel. I remember describing this to my therapist and um, it's this phantom feeling that something terrible is going to happen, you know, that um, it really just stems from being a child and being on high alert all the time and never feeling safe, but the body remembers this stuff. And um, as an adult, none of these um, behaviours are necessary anymore. They were just there as remnants. Uh, a little child in me needed these um, responses and behaviours so that I could be alert, so that I could jump out of bed if something was happening to my mom and we could escape. But unfortunately, um, many people who have experienced PTSD are familiar with this feeling of, of dread, but it's also, you know, combined with some of the, the hangover that I feel from the shame of growing up with domestic violence and the shame of, of, uh, dealing with and accepting my sexuality. You know, it's all sort of lumped into one and some days it can just be a little too much. And uh, writing this song was difficult until my therapist said to me, what if that feeling that you have in your stomach, what if it's not something rotten? What if it's a little baby? And him just saying that to me, it put a smile on my face and it was the most beautiful feeling that instead of resisting and trying to stop the feeling from coming forward, what if I just let it go? What if I just gave birth? A little uh, tidbit that's interesting is at the end of this song, I start singing the first song I ever wrote, which was a song about Marilyn Monroe. And I'm singing the lyrics, you flew away from it all, turned around and the, seed, the, the scene had ended to be left out in the cold again. And um, I wrote that when I was, I don't know, in high school uh, on guitar about Marilyn Monroe. And I'm singing this about myself in the end, but it's a, it's a really nice kind of poetic, um, um, justice in some ways because the album's ending with the first song I ever wrote. And then it's referencing the first song on the most recent album I've ever written. 
and it ends with a beautiful message. Now, this is an interesting way to end the album, and Darren is very insistent, isn't he, that this, even though it can't get onto the physical release, that this is very much uh, the the way to finish the Listy experience, to loop back to where we came from. And I guess that feeling about he what, wanting and considering about getting these things out of him, these feelings, um, making the record a labour of love, uh, you know, like giving birth, not always a pleasant experience, but one that's necessary. And maybe, is it something he wanted to do? Is it something he didn't want to do? I think we're glad he did. I think we're very glad he did. And also, I just love that the album ends on a track called Birth. I love, I like the more experimental nature to to this track. It does remind me of some older Darren stuff. And I do love, I've said before, the throwbacks. You know, there's definitely some, the tension, the spark in this album. There's definitely some of uh, his earlier work in there. But there's definitely stuff that's still pushing the envelope. But, I mean, you know, this album, I've just a fantastic listen. And I have listened to it all the way through a number of times. And my favourite tracks keep changing and I keep hearing more things. That production, so detailed, so 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 brilliant. And the passion with which he talks about how he created some of those sounds, what specific synth he's using, how he's used his voice to do it as well. What was it he said? I only wanted to have uh, sounds that I could make myself on this album. Mm. Such commitment. We're... Are we out of we are we're out of, out of time. time and it is a bumper episode this time but we couldn't keep anything out especially hearing from darren himself so that was darren hayes homosexual do let us know what you think to the album and what you think to the episode either in the comments on patreon or on the socials at track by track uk and it must be said that's why you might have heard a little bit less from us today is because we actually wanted to keep as much of the content with Darren in as possible and not lose it in the edit Um, because you wouldn't believe the stuff we have to cut out rabbiting on on the uh, normal track by track (laughs) episodes absolute rubbish (laughs) and as we said at the start this episode was available through early access on Patreon which is just one of the many benefits including instant access to over 50 exclusive episodes which includes our Deep Cuts Patreon exclusive series further listening and there are more exclusives every single month so until next time big thank you to darren again until next time i've tried being in love and i've been a nocturnal animal goodbye good night goodbye